Whenever I was 12 years old, I met Moses. Now, I'm, I'm talking about the burning bush, Ten Commandments, part the Red Sea Moses. Well, kind of. I actually met Charleston Heston at Universal Studios. But you know what I mean. I mean, it was remarkable to be able to shake his hand and get his autograph and realize, man, I've been watching this guy part the Red Sea. And as we walked around Universal Studios, it was all the more amazing to me of all of the different sets, movie sets. And I was thinking just recently, what would it have been like if we would have taken the character of Moses and forced him into another movie set. He wouldn't really have fit in, say, Spider-Man. You know, if you were watching Spider-Man or some other movie that you like, and all of a sudden there's Charleston Heston as Moses trying to do his, his thing, you know, we would have thought that really doesn't go together. And then as you walk to the different movie sets throughout Universal Studios, I remember as a kid thinking, they're all so real and so different. For the sake of our context this morning, let me convert the word set into culture. When you walk around San Diego, and even if you have a global view. Isn't it true? How many different cultures there are. And may I even say, within the church. I don't really have a problem with a lot of different cultures being mirrored in the church as long as Moses fits. Moses would not do well in Spider-Man. Jesus does not automatically fit just because we call something the church. There's got to be some parameters. If Jesus is going to not only fit within the culture of the church, but if he is also going to be given opportunity to do in that culture what only Jesus can do. See, there's no Red Sea to part in Spider-Man. There's no burning bush for Moses to encounter in Spider-Man. Moses meeting with God at Starbucks or something. That would be about the best you could do in Spider-Man. And what has happened is we have made a reversal. Remember that old statement? I, I, I said it within my own ministry life. It's a statement that goes like this. You'll remember it. As goes the church so goes the country. 
Not anymore. Not anymore. Today, September 2018, as goes the country, so goes the church. And it breaks my heart to say that. But things have shifted. Things have changed. And even when I said to you this morning, at 12 years old, I met Moses. Some of you were thinking, oh, you had a vision. You had an encounter. And I don't mean to make light of, light of it. I wasn't trying to trick you as much as just using it as an example that sometimes we tell people, you can meet Jesus. But what we've got to make sure is that this is no actor. Jesus don't come to church for us just to shake his hand and get his autograph and say, hey, I met Jesus. He comes to take over your life. He comes to not only be Savior, he comes to be Lord and King. I want us to look at a passage that we're all familiar with, Matthew 16. This is where uh, there was a time when Jesus came to his own disciples and he wanted to know. How is it that people are discerning me these days? Isn't that a powerful thing? He looked to his disciples. He said, who is it that people are saying I am? Now, I've never had that, that need in my life. You know? But when you're as dynamic as the Messiah and, and your public demonstrations Words of life and wisdom are so powerful. Everybody's going to talk. They said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, who was dead by this time as well. Uh, some say you're Jeremiah or you're one of the, Elijah, one of the prophets. In other words, here's what they ultimately said. Jesus said, who is it that people are saying that I am? Their answer, some are saying that you are a, a reincarnated spiritualist. Because John's dead, Elijah's dead, Jeremiah's dead, and everybody's saying, or a lot of people are saying, maybe you're one of them. How many of you realize Jesus is not a reincarnation of anything? He was and is the Christ, the Savior of the whole world. But Jesus wanted to know something further. And, and let, me, let me assure you this. What you are about to hear Jesus ask, this is the most important question you will ever have to answer in your life. This is the question right here. Who do you say I, the Son of Man, am? Because what you answer to that question determines for you everything. And certainly, it matters your answer to what you do with his church. Peter said, I know who you are. You're the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Jesus, I think he got a little bit overwhelmed. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Didn't just call him Peter anymore. He, he said, you're blessed, son of Barjona, 
Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And he said, and upon this rock of revelation of who I am, here's what Jesus himself said. The Christ said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Jesus is the church architect, builder, and sustainer. And without him, the house that we build is what? It's in vain. Unless the Lord Jesus builds his church, it doesn't matter what we call it. It may as well be another cultural set for Moses to walk in on, but if it's going to be the church that Jesus builds, there are certain things that you can absolutely count on to know his handprint is on that work. Over the next several weeks, we're going to consider what these different characterizations are. We just had a great prophecy conference, 16th annual, and I personally, in my own study and walk with Jesus, I cannot say enough about these conferences and what they have supplied for my relationship with Jesus, my relationship to the harvest and the kingdom of God as we are in the world together. It's just been a tremendous, tremendous gift, Brother Donald, that you have afforded Christian Worship Center. As the pastor, I thank you. Amen. One of Brother Donald's friends and colleagues, as well as now a a true friend of Christian Worship Center, has written a book. It's just a small pamphlet called A Prophetic Manifesto by Dr. David Reagan. There's a couple of things here that I just want to bring to point. Something right out of his own writings. He says, Ignorance of God's word has even become true of evangelical Christians. The very people whose identity in the past was linked to their reliance upon the Bible for their ultimate authority in all things. Surveys by the Barna Group reveal that among those claiming to be evangelical Christians today, today, 37% do not believe the Bible to be totally accurate. Of of Christians polled in this season, 45% do not believe that Jesus was sinless. 52% do not believe that Satan is even real. I would say, like they say on on the playground, he got you, man. You believe he doesn't exist? That's exactly where he wants you. Anyway, going back to this, 57% do not believe that Jesus is the only way to God. These are Christians. This is not the world. This is among those who say Jesus is the Savior of my life, but I don't believe he's the only way. That's 57%. Another 57% believe that good works play a significant part in gaining eternal life. Public opinion polls concerning the fundamental beliefs of Christian Christianity consistently reveal that the number of true Bible-believing Christians in America today 
Bible-believing Christians is only 9%. As goes the church, so goes the country. Not anymore. So goes the country. So goes the church. You say, well, what happened? How did we get here? God's eternal grand design of the church. How did we arrive at such a place where it seems that we're running on empty? And we have deteriorated to no longer being the primary voice of leadership influence and direction for our nation, even our generation, what happened? Do you all remember, maybe in grade school or vacation Bible school, I played it a lot of different times, we played a game called Fire Brigade. And basically what it is, is everybody on one team lines up, and the other team lines up against them, and the first person gets a a glass or a styrofoam cup and fills it up with water, And as quickly as possible, it's full now to the brim because ultimately the objective is you want to get as much water in the end bucket as possible because whoever gets through the the finish line first wins. So you you want maximum water. You don't want to spill anything so that you can dump it into the end bucket. But, of course, we're kids, and we're moving fast. And we're just really thinking about our part. I'm not necessarily thinking about how this guy's going to hand it off. I'm just thinking about how I'm going to grab it and how I'm going to hand it off and I'm done with my part because we want to move as fast as possible. The problem is, is that every time it's being handed off, what are we doing? We're sloshing out the goods to ultimately we may pour in a quarter of what we started with. This is a good picture of what's happened from generation to generation to where we are now. We had a generation or two before us that was so full of the word, so full of the anointing, so full of the glory and the power of God. But little by little, we got quicker and quicker because we needed to get our kids back to the phone. We needed to get them back to food and fun and fantasy because this is not as enjoyable as it needs to be, but ultimately what we've done is we have filled their buckets up with foolishness. And now when it comes time for Jesus to build his church, the materials that he's looking for have significantly diminished. And I know things are busy, I know that there's a lot going on. Most of us probably enjoy some level of reading. Maybe you're like many folks that in your late teens, early 20s, something that you didn't really enjoy doing in your adolescence, all of a sudden became this, wow, eye-opening escape into someone's story. That when I'm reading, I can 
go to other places. I can learn things and experience things all while never leaving my bedroom or my study. Reading is powerful. Think of it this way. God's word was spoken so it could be written down. It was written down, why? So that we could read it and ultimately speak it. But don't skip over the reading part. You can't speak what you don't know. Anyway, back to this. If I were to ask for a show of hands, and I'm including you who are with us through the internet, of course, and ask how many of you love the privilege and the benefit of reading, we would probably all, yes, yes, very much so. But let me ask you this. How many of you remember celebrating going to school to learn grammar? Oh, man. That goes right along with root canal. And changing the oil in the car, unless you like doing that kind of thing. But for me, it's like, oh, not looking forward to that at all. I did not enjoy sitting in class and learning sentence structure and nouns and pronouns and verbs and adjectives. I didn't want to learn any of that. Just let me go play. But now, oh, you can ask Wendy. I, I've, I love to read. It's, it's, a, it's a primary passion of my life. Good doctrine is necessary if you are going to not be deceived by a fake Jesus on a fake set, promising but empty of power because we have made a cultural church rather than a Christian church. And friend, no one likes to study doctrine unless you like that kind of thing. But for most of us, it's root canal. It's, it's algebra. It's sitting down. It's, it's conference mode. I don't mean anything disrespectful to Brother Don. You already heard what I said. I benefit greatly. But let me tell you, conference mode, that's learning grammar. That's learning sentence structure. That's learning the things that are necessary. So that when you are in a time of adversity and everybody else is at the mercy of those who can read, See, this is part of what the church is about. Do you know what a, a, a shepherd's primary responsibility is? Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. And then as though Jesus wanted a little bit deeper conviction of Peter, he asked him again, Peter, do you love me? Not do you love the idea of me. Oh, Lord, help me. Do you love the Hollywood image of me? Do you love me as your homie, as your homeboy, as your buddy, as your pal, as one who will leave you as I found you? Do you love that? No, no, no. Do you love me? The one who has required that you eat my flesh, you drink my blood, and you meet me at the cross. Do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Here's how you're going to show me. Feed my sheep. I remember, oh, now as a pastor, this shook me to my core, I'm telling you. When I read, some of you have heard it already, Charles Spurgeon 
say this. He said, the day is coming in the church when shepherds will no longer feed sheep. They will be clowns entertaining the goats. That breaks my heart. Oh, oh God. we going to do? What are we going to do? Help us, God. It would be better to be a God-fearing, Jesus Christ-centered church than a culturally relevant, powerless church. Unless the Lord builds the house. Those who have built it have labored in vain. If we're going to invest in building, if we're going to invest in something that needs to remain, there's this phrase that's out these days. There's a hack for that. Remember that? There, you can hack, or here's a hack to cleaning certain types of clothes, or here's a hack to investing. Or You say, well, what is a hack? For some of you who may not be aware of what the term hack is, I've written out the definition. It's a trick. It's a shortcut. But here's the real definition of what a hack is. It's a quick work of a long job. When it comes to worship, when it comes to prayer, when it comes to the anointing, when it comes to the glory, and certainly when it comes to the church, you will lose that before God will allow you to hack it. You can't hack building the church. You can't hack the anointing. There's no hack. There's no shortcut, there's no trick, there's no short job for a long work. Why? Because God is not near as interested in what we are getting as He is in whom we are becoming. We are His church. In Ephesians chapter 2, everybody, the Apostle Paul gives us some tremendous insight as to God's intention and design. In verse 19 of Ephesians 2, the word says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. So now we're beginning to see some of the definition of the church. There's a design, there's a definition, there's an intention we're going to look at over these next several weeks. 
But for one, the church is the household of God. God is our Father, and we are His family. We're not just an organization. We're not just a kingdom. We're not just a project. We're the family of God, born of His Spirit, called by His name, filled with His glory, heirs of His promise. We have, verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. Jesus said, I will build my church. Here he says, I'm going to build it on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In other words, I am going to build this church on the revelation given to you by the prophets and the apostles of who I am and what I have come to accomplish. In other words, it's impossible to partner in building the church together with Jesus if you don't know what the prophets and the apostles have even said about him. Now you can, you can help, you can contribute, but again, it's not so much what we're doing or what we're getting that God is committed to. He is most committed to who it is that we are becoming in doing the work together with Him. In our generation, we want everything as fast as possible. We want the fruits with no investment or at least minimal investment because we have learned how to hack You can't hack the things of God. You can't take a pill for the anointing. You can't order online the glory of God. Send me two doses of that. If you want to help Jesus build his church, because how many of you agree, with us or without us, Jesus is going to build his church and the gates of hell will not be able to withstand the onslaught of his righteousness. But see, if we were to go back to the considerations of the the Barna poll and realize that so many in our generation don't even believe that Jesus is the only way or that the Bible is even true, then why are you talking to us about all of this? It doesn't even matter. It's not real. No, it's real. And I wish that I had the capacity to convince you, but in God's design, you have to get it from Him. That's part of the process. It reminds me of that little chick. We see that little chick that's inside of that egg. And we hear the rumbling and the tumbling and the pecking and the moving, and we're thinking, oh. Let me help that little fella get out. And so we take the little peck of our good intentions and start knocking on that egg because we're going to open up its shell so it can get out. Did you know that the influx of that air so quickly in its little heart that has not yet been prepared, he will suffocate. Say, why? Because part of the pecking is what's necessary in order to develop his little heart being exercised and being used so that by the time he takes that first gasp of air, he is able to hold it for himself. 
See, we've tried to spoon feed everybody Christianity. We're going to make Jesus look like whatever we need to. We're going to put him on a, a movie set of our kind. Our, we've even got churches now that have four different types of movie sets that they call church. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm all about having a senior service, having a single service, having a cool service, having a traditional service. I, I understand what we're going on. Just make sure that Jesus fits in every one of those scenes. Because if it's all about just making sure people show up to the set and Jesus himself is not there, you have promised them an empty promise that will not change their lives and it will certainly not bring them into the full destiny of what God has intended to make them into. One of the prayers that we pray often and we will continue to pray because we know that God answers prayers. God, give to Christian Worship Center, give to our families, give to our children, give to our generation, oh God, an insatiable hunger for you, oh God. Oh God, let it be. Not a hunger for religion, not a hunger for more traditions, not a hunger for our own, not even hunger for give us a big church, God. No, no, no. We want an insatiable hunger for you and your presence and your heart being satisfied with who we are and what we're doing. Let it be, oh God. If that's your prayer, would you just shout amen? amen. <laughs> this is getting better now here. We're, we're almost to the end of our time together. But listen, here he goes on. In verse 21, you ready? Talking about Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, in whom... The whole building is being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. I think that this is part of the challenge that we face in our generation. And again, it's just something that we have to realize God designed us this way. I'm going to read it again, see if you catch it. In whom the whole building, Jesus said, I will what? Build my church. He didn't say, I'm, I'm going to ease them in to the, to the, build, uh, to the church. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to mold them by mesmerization and meditations, and wonderful experiences. I'm all about meditating on the Word, and I love wonderful experiences in God, but those are not what he uses to build his church. Building means this. I am going to saw on them. I am going to hammer on them. I'm going to bring out the plane that gets the rough edges off, and then I'm going to fitly join them. Fitly join not too long ago, Wendy and I picked up a piece of furniture that uh, Roger was kind enough to open the drawer, and he pointed something out. He, he showed me how the drawer was made on the inside where the wood had actually been threaded together. That's probably the wrong verbiage, but you get my point. It was fitly joined. In other words, it wasn't just glued side to side. These pieces of wood learned how to uh, hold on to each other as though they depended upon one another. dovetailed, fitly joined together. 
See, that's an era gone by in the kingdom of God. It's an era gone by. I don't mean any disrespect to anybody. I hope y'all come back to church. We don't spend enough time together to be joined together. We got to get back to the phone. We got to get back to the food. We got to get back to the fun. We got to get back to the fantasy. We got to get back to what life is all about. Is it possible that this is what our life is to be about, is building the church? Now, don't misunderstand. I've been in camp meetings. You know what camp meetings are? Camp meetings are five-day long, six-day long, seven-day long. Some of those meetings were four hours every day. I'm not suggesting that took my breath away when I said that. Excuse me. I'm not suggesting that we go back to that. But don't we have time? To say, Lord, whatever it is that you're wanting to do this day, can I give you one day where you can work on me? Cut, nail, saw, plane, do whatever you need to do so that, Lord, you can use me as a living stone to be fitly joined into a dwelling place for God. This is ultimately what God is after. He said we are being fitted together. We grow. This is, this is why I want you to come to church. I don't, I don't want you to come to church because I need a, a full room to talk to. I've talked to pastors and ministers long enough. You, you can talk to Brother Donald here. I've encouraged him before. When attendance is way low, I just say to him, hey, hey Always remember, audience of one. Audience of one. Whether we are talking to 1,000 people, 10,000 people, or I am talking to Jesus alone, it is for his honor, it is for his glory, and he deserves my best no matter who I'm talking to. So it's not about that, but I, I want you to come so that you can learn how to read, so that you can get good doctrine, so that you won't be deceived, and so that God can work on you through the word and the anointing, because he can get some rough stuff off of you. And not only that, he can prepare you to be fitly joined in the church, and it's the church that's going to last. We're being fit together, growing into what? Verse 22, a dwelling place of God. Whoa. You say, well, watch this. Wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there will I be in the midst of them. Isn't that a promise of Jesus? You say, so what's the big deal, Pastor Art? You got two or three. Enjoy. Don't complain. (laughs) Let me ask you something. Do you think that what Jesus was saying was, attendance never matters. If it's just you and one other person, I'll be there and we'll get it all done. As much as he was saying, know this, that even when it's required for whatever reason, there's only two or three of you there, just know I will be there to make up all of the difference and we will have a powerful, fruitful encounter together. But he wasn't saying, hey, church, it doesn't matter. Go do whatever you want to do. All I need is a couple people to show up, and we're going to pray through. No. Now, don't misunderstand either in that 
I'm not looking for Jesus to build mega churches everywhere. I don't have I personally don't have a problem with mega churches. As long as Jesus fits in that culture, as long as Jesus is the center of all of it and he is able to do what only he can do, I'm happy. But if you're going to build a mega church and and call it Moses and just a movie set and say, "Hey, come meet Jesus," you're you're going to lead a lot of people in trouble. Make sure Jesus is there. But I've had people ask at Christian Worship Center when it comes to God building the church. Why is this church not thousands and thousands of people? I said, well, maybe it has to do with what he's put in my heart as the pastor. In that, that's just not my desire. And I believe that my desire comes from him because I'm ultimately pastoring for him. He's the chief shepherd. I'm the under shepherd. But I, I would rather have 10 churches of 500 than one church of 5,000. That's me. That's not everybody. But I do believe that it's God's intention that when we gather together, if it's at all possible, in other words, you're not in the hospital, prison, out of town. If you just decide, the church does not need me today, you are mistaken. Pastor won't miss me today. You are mistaken. Because I'm here to feed the sheep. I have an assignment. And if I can feed 500 versus feeding 150, I will take the 500 because I want you to grow. I don't want you to be deceived. I want you to be prepared. I want you to be fitly joined. And I want the kingdom increase because, after all, Jesus Christ within us is the hope of glory to the nations. Am I doing all right? Everybody okay? I'm asking, I, I am, I realize I'm asking for a little affirmation here, but in a message like this, you, you don't blame me, do you? I'm like, <laughs> I'm just praying that you all come back next week and <laughs> take, our, take our medicine. <laughs> but it's in love, everybody. It's in love. It, and it's according to the word. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Can you imagine what San Diego would be like if every Christian church was a dwelling place of God? That when when we show up here on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights, this place has packed out expectation and God descends into the midst of his church. Remember Zephaniah 3? The Bible says, the Lord your God in the midst of you is mighty. He is able to save, to heal, deliver, restore, set free, make new. The Lord your God, where? In the midst of you. In the midst of the church, our God can do anything. But if we don't believe that he's the only way, we don't believe in the inerrancy of the word of God or that there's other ways to get to God, then our time together is going to be at best diluted of its power and expectation. So this is a series about divine design. This is a series about God's church in the earth. And today, all I felt my assignment was to do is to 
inspire you to dream again about God's design for the church. You have been listening to a teaching from San Diego Christian Worship Center. For more information and additional resources, visit us online at worshipjc.com. Thank you.